0: In 2017, natural disasters cost the United States a total of $306 billion in damages, making it the most costly disaster year ever.
1: You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of Climate Exchange.
0: Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change.
2: Each week, we feature special guests and in depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths,
0: Ryan Maya,
2: and Maria Virginia Olano.
0: The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, the authoritative body on climate science and how climate change is progressing, has stated that climate change leads to changes in the frequency, intensity, the place, the duration, and timing of extreme weather and climate events, and it's resulting in unprecedented extreme weather and climate. Not only the environmental impacts, but the socioeconomic impacts of these events are going to get worse in the years to come.
2: And we have seen a marked increase in natural disasters. And in 2017, we saw 362 Americans die due to hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and other natural disasters. And that's the same year that President Donald Trump dropped climate change from the U.S. national security strategy. So let's get into exactly how climate change is increasing the intensity and frequency of some of the extreme weather events that we are seeing. Starting off, heat waves, that seems pretty pretty intuitive with global warming. you have a warming atmosphere, that's going to lead to very hot weather that can last longer periods of time. And technically speaking, a heat wave is extreme heat lasting from days to weeks. I believe in Boston, we have to have over three days of 90 degree weather for it to be considered a heat wave here. Which we have had over the past few years, even days over 100 degrees Right, that's increased in frequency too. And especially in urban areas, not just Boston, you have the heat island effect, which is where there's such a concentration of concrete and asphalt and and these materials that naturally collect and retain heat, and no natural materials that really decrease that heat, that you just see even overnight temperatures still remaining high. And so for vulnerable populations like the elderly, who if they don't have access to cooling centers or their own air conditioner, Since their body temperatures never have that time to recover, you can see heat stroke and other health impacts from that?
1: There are socioeconomic factors to consider as well, because vulnerable populations are also those people living with low or no income mm-hmm. that also are potentially less able to run ACs on their homes or live in more densely populated areas in cities, mm-hmm. which are disproportionately affected by such things as heat waves. And
0: lower income communities are less likely to have green spaces, which right. absorb a lot of the impacts of heat island Effects. And these temperature increases can range from 2 degrees to 5 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, and in the evening, as high as 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty incredible. On a day where you have 80 or 90 degree temperatures, that's up to 110.
2: Beyond heat waves, another big extreme weather event that we hear a lot about are hurricanes, the extreme storms and the flooding or storm surges that happen from those. So how exactly is climate change impacting those weather systems? We know that an increase in atmospheric temperature is also warm in the oceans, and that added energy in the oceans can help fuel coastal storms. So uh, hurricanes really feed off of these warmer-temperatured waters. So if we're looking at overall warmer ocean temperatures, we're going to see more extreme hurricanes, or they can last for a longer period of time at those higher intensities. And so you can see a category four or five hurricane lasting a lot longer than it traditionally would. And when you see hurricanes coming up the east coast of the United States, especially, we have such massive coastal populations that have built up there. And when you see a a really high hurricane intensity, even going through Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria, and then coming up, the coast, it caused a lot of damage. Right.
1: And last year was almost the year of hurricanes with the amount that we saw. It was Hurricane Harvey affecting Houston, Hurricane Maria mm-hmm. affecting Puerto Rico. Most of those communities have still not recovered right. even months and months after because they hadn't built the infrastructure, the resilience needed to bounce back from events like that, specifically in Houston, because nobody was expecting Right. An event of such proportion. Even when it said it was coming, the the people there were not expecting the damage to be in the extent that it was. And so we're looking at kind of rethinking the ways in which we almost predict disasters like these and needing to build up for those worst case scenarios, which are going to be all the more likely.
0: 2017 definitely was the year of hurricanes. There were 10 recorded hurricanes in the United States, and six of them were major hurricanes, which is category three or above, which is pretty substantial.
1: And similarly, in Boston, the amount of flooding that we've seen this spring, and even in the winter, starting with that terrible storm, the first week of January, below freezing temperatures, T stops, completely flooded. Everything just paralyzed because people were not expecting the city to flood the way that it did. And it happened Mm -hmm. at least two more times with the bomb cyclones. Yeah,
2: 2018 has been the year of bomb cyclones. (laughs) We have so claimed it now. (laughs) The last extreme weather event that we'll go into are fires, which, again, when you have warming temperatures and the atmosphere is warmer, plants tend to evaporate more, and so you have plants drying up which makes them more likely to catch fire. And 2017 was the
1: worst year for California wildfire history. We also saw wildfires completely consuming very large areas in California and destroying communities and property.
0: Yeah the wildfires of 2017 destroyed or damaged more than 10,000 structures in the state. Um, That's more than the last nine years combined and they actually killed 43 people. But something interesting that you do see is that there are thousands of structures destroyed, but uh, the deaths, though though very, fairly high, uh, were not in the hundreds or thousands. Mm-hmm. And that sort of uh, goes to thought about social capital. That's going to be the topic of today's podcast interview, where uh, the people in California had more access to the ability to evacuate, to get away from the area.
1: Right so getting into the idea of social capital social capital a very basic definition would be the resources available through bonding bridging and linking social ties and networks that allows for access to resources at critical times and so social capital there's a lot of literature about how it plays into disaster recovery the idea being that when a disaster strikes your basic source for resources would be those networks that you have whether it be your neighbors your family members your friends who are able to assist you either first or for a more prolonged time than first respondents for example so the person that we're going to talk with today is Daniel Aldridge, who is a professor at Northeastern University and the Director for Security and Resilience Studies. He has conducted years of research in Japan after the Fukushima disasters of 3.11, as well as in the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina, in India post-tsunami and many other places in the world, his research focusing on how individuals and victims of disaster have used social ties in order to recover and bounce back and actually come back to the communities that were struck by disaster. Hi, Professor Aldrich. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you about your expertise, which is social capital and post-disaster recovery, and how that works into climate adaptation. So I guess we'll start with, it's 2005, you just moved to New Orleans to take a new teaching job at Tulane, and a couple of weeks into your time there, Hurricane Katrina hits and yes. it hits your home. Right. So can you walk us through how how that happened, how you lived through that, and how that changed your research, your insights, and your, your interests?
3: Sure. So we left Boston in mid-July 2005. And we had six really good weeks in New Orleans. So we got, we, it's my first job, so of course you want to buy things. We had a car, we had a house, we filled it with furniture and books and toys for our kids. So incredibly optimistic about the future. And then the weekend of the 28th of August, we noticed our neighbors were packing up their cars. They're putting stuff in the back seat of a truck. They're putting their dogs in kennels and putting them in the back. Their grandma's also in the back. And you saw this sort of slow exodus from our neighborhood, which is called Lakeview. And we didn't really understand what was going on. We weren't listening to the radio. We didn't have Twitter or the other things people have nowadays for updates. We didn't have even a TV on in the house. It wasn't until Saturday night that we recognized we were one of the few neighbors left uh, in the entire neighborhood, maybe two or three houses, lights on still. And was a knock at our door, and it was a a person we'd just met a few weeks before named Kathy. Mm -hmm. And Kathy told us that you guys should really go. You've got two young kids. You should really flee now. Wow. And we told her our plan, well, she told us what was happening. We told her, well, we'll stay because, you know, if we, if we leave, maybe we'll get looted or whatever. We had these really naive conceptions. And she said, no, no, you should really go. So now it's really midnight, Saturday night. And we have two young kids at the time, four and two years old. And we decided, okay, well, I guess we'll just pack up the house to what we can, take a bag of stuff for three days. Because that's how we feel. A good day there, two days there, another day back. And we got in the car. Now, it took us about 14 hours to go what normally is a four-hour trip from New Orleans to Houston that's the only way you could drive an I-10 all the roads in and out of New Orleans were counterflowed. flowed I mean they only flow west so you can't go east you can only go west so all of us a million of us were driving on that highway, and it took us, again, more than half a day to get all the way out there. We got the very last hotel room on the edge of a very sketchy industrial park in Houston, settled in Sunday night with our kids, who we were excited, of course, because we're traveling now. <laughs> Monday was the first day of school for them, so we kind of avoided that, right? when They knew that we weren't going to have school on Monday. My first day of Tulane would have been Monday as well. And, of course, that Monday never happened. Uh, that next morning, we got up, and we heard pretty early, maybe by 9 o'clock that morning, some yells from the lobby, and we didn't know what was going on. We looked in, and the other people who had come from New Orleans were watching the television in the lobby, and it was talking about the reporters were reporting there was water in the streets. Even the hurricane had passed. There was no rain anymore. But, of course, the levees had just broken, and the water was beginning to come in and fill the city up. So my wife and I looked at each other. You know, this was now Monday, and we said, like, what do we do? We, sort of, we more or less sat there for a few days, kind of just in shock. Uh, And eventually we sort of took this meandering drive from Houston to North Carolina, where our parents live, and then kind of up the coast back to Boston, because at the time we didn't know what we were going to do with that whole semester. Over the next days, from that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we began getting emails and phone calls from people who said... You, know, you don't know who we are. We're friends of your friend, or a friend of a family, or a synagogue, or this uh, organization in Philadelphia and in Colorado. We heard that you need help. What? what how can we help you? Hmm. So people we never met offered us lottery tickets. They offered us places to stay. I got offers of a place to work that semester. Not much work with them, honestly. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do much work, but I had these offers, and I began to think through. You know, what's driving us as a family? How are we going to recover as a family? And it became pretty clear. Actually, we applied to FEMA early on. I think by the second week in September, we'd applied to FEMA. And the first thing they told us was no. Um, They thought we had insurance, which we actually didn't have. Another failure of the market there. And we had to prove to them we didn't have insurance. So proving you don't have insurance is kind of hard. It took us about six months. So in that six-month period, we didn't have insurance money. We didn't have FEMA money. The only assistance we were getting came from family, from friends, friends of friends, these sort of random people who wanted to help us. And I began to think, you know, I had this vision that recovery would be about the government. The government would come in. And actually, I didn't understand what FEMA did at the time. I thought FEMA came in and sort of fixed everything. So I had this vision that I would be sitting around and they'd be knocking at our door, you know, whatever hotel we're staying in, and FEMA would come in with a check and say, congratulations. Wave their wand. Wave their wand. Exactly. You know, give us some spending cards. And none of that happened. Uh, none of that happened to us. And and the only reason I think we were able to keep going was because the kindness of strangers in Houston, who literally said, oh, you have two kids with you. They need no. toys. My wife and I got clothing from families we had. To see. We had nothing but what we were wearing at the time. So we literally began to repopulate our our material goods from the people that we met. And although we went briefly back to New Orleans in 2006 for about four months, but it really on my mind wasn't staying in Tulane, but we were studying the disaster. What did it mean to recover? And I moved away from this sort of market and state-focused approaches, right? Somehow the insurance company will save us. We didn't have insurance. The state will save us. We didn't get any aid until after February. Someplace in the middle was this idea that, the connections that we had, the friends, the friends of friends, um, what we call social capital, was going to make a difference. And I began to think, and you know, what if I could show that my story, our story as a family, wasn't unique? What if I, we weren't were we are not the only ones? Perhaps, what if I could find families in very very poor countries, uh, like the Indian Ocean tsunami in India, or very very wealthy countries like in Japan, very well organized countries that have had disasters? Mm-hmm. They also have the same stories.
1: So that leads us to exactly to your second question, <laughs> which is the empirical evidence that you have actually found through this research in India and in Japan and in the Gulf Coast does show that social capital is one variable that undoubtedly plays an immense part not only during the disaster but after it improves the percentage of people who survive a disaster but also the amount of people who come back after and how they rebuild the places that were impacted you could share with us some of those stories and some of how how that plays out for somebody who maybe doesn't know what social capital means tangibly
3: yes i mean for me the most uh, emotional stories that i heard were from the elderly who lived in japan we're actually sitting in my office right now and on the wall is a picture that a friend of mine took uh, there in tohoku right after the disaster about a day later and this is the kind of story that i would hear when i'd interview survivors the earthquake on march the eleventh was really powerful a 9.0 is tremendously powerful you can't stand up that's how much shaking there is but amazingly enough, people that we talked to didn't feel it on the coast where they were living, especially the elderly. People in beds, for example, people who um, are either have dementia or, or they're a little bit senile, they didn't actually notice there was a disaster. Within literally seconds of the earthquake, the government began warning everyone, please get up wherever you are and just go uphill. Get out of the disaster zone. You're in an area where there could be a tsunami, a massive wave coming in, and they move really fast. But of course... We had thousands of people sitting in their hospital beds, sitting in, sitting in chairs, sitting in wheelchairs, not moving at all, either because they didn't know there was a disaster, they couldn't get out of their beds, they couldn't get into the wheelchair, get uphill. We heard over and over again doing interviews with people where there'd be a knock at the door, much like I heard on my door, right before King Katrina, and someone would say, Mrs. Tanaka. It's me, Mr. Nakazawa, from next door. There's been an earthquake. We really have to go. And then literally, they would pick up the elderly, pick up the infirm, and put them on their backs, put them on bicycles, on uh, cars, and drive them, what often was only about a mile, from the lowest point next to the shore to the high ground. You know, you had that 40-minute period where people are rescuing neighbor, kin, friends, people they're taking care of. And what we saw was holding everything else constant. In communities where there were tighter ties, fewer people died. People were saved by neighbors, by friends of friends. You know factors that we thought would matter for example japan's invested billions of dollars in infrastructure physical infrastructure like seawalls so if you've ever been on a japanese beach for example you might see you ever play jacks as a kid the game where you have a ball (laughs) yeah those jacks kind of have four legs so in japan they have those jacks they're 20 feet tall they're made of concrete they're called tetrapods because of course they have four feet (laughs) Uh, they're these massive things And the construction industry makes them by the thousands and piles them up along the coasts, and they build a seawall beyond that. Mm -hmm. So two levels of protection they think will keep back the water. Mm -hmm. Our data showed that none of that physical infrastructure had an impact on mortality. The communities that had or didn't have, you couldn't tell if mortality was impacted at all by having this really expensive, ugly, large-scale construction (laughs) process. And that makes a difference for two reasons. One is, I think the governments really want to invest in something that they can point to. We want to show you that we're doing something, right? So I think Mm -hmm. about any mayor or two years in office or a governor or president, I'll show you the wall, I'll build something, right? (laughs) And these kind of impulses that we have to show we're somehow uh, active and involved in a politician. But not only did it not work, but the other thing we found in talking to people was people told us we didn't evacuate because we thought those tetrapods and Mm seawalls would protect us. So the, the economists would call that a moral hazard. So you do something that you think is a good idea you offer this infrastructure to protect lives but if the infrastructure doesn't work and people are delaying their evacuation because of it you're actually not saving lives you're actually putting them at risk
0: yeah. So you touched on this a little bit, but what is the response in Japan uh, been to the research you've done there? It sounds like there's been some pushback. Has there been any uh, any positive impact, any change in uh, the policies that are implemented there or the the spending schemes?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, we've been really lucky. So I've got a team of colleagues in Japan and also people here in Northeastern I'm working with uh, here in Boston and in San Francisco. And what we found is at the micro level, at the city level, neighborhood level, this idea really resonates well so a lot of ngos in japan Ibasho, a lot of local communities and organizations have said we believe this this is the lived experience that we had we're going to invest our time in this kind of approach at the national level whether it's north america or japan It's harder to point to obvious successes. I mean, FEMA, for example, did ask me to talk just a few weeks ago on this idea of the role of social ties in recovery. That was nice to see. You know, will FEMA flip all of its approaches now away from rebuilding infrastructure to building social infrastructure? I'm not sure I could go that far. But I know, for example, there's a program in Colorado called Boco Strong, Boulder, Colorado Strong. After the 2013 floods and fire there, their whole focus is a city. Mm-hmm. wasn't any more about you know, building fireproof homes or building floodproof homes, but about connecting at a local level. How do we build a society? How do we build a community in Colorado that's around these ideas of social cohesion? little uh, Littleton in New Zealand, in Wellington there, San Francisco recognizes they have a major hazard coming, mm-hmm. which will be a huge earthquake. In fact, the New York Times covered this physical infrastructure hazard, which is developers have put up these massive 50, 60, 70-story skyscrapers in the heart of the city, which looks really nice. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there is no agreed-upon building code against a disaster like an earthquake. Now, of course, there are things in place against seismic activity, but even the best engineers have said at least one in ten buildings will probably fail. And those buildings are massive. A failure of a building like that would mean the building might actually topple. If one building that doesn't have seismic code topples, it doesn't matter what the ones nearby have. So now we have interdependency problems, right? Now we have other buildings nearby facing a challenge. So I think the answer would be yes. At the local, at the micro level, communities and local governments recognize the power of these ties. It, It makes sense to them. It's an experience. The further you get up in the policymaking sphere, the harder it is to convince the policymaker. Look, rather than building a wall or building floating houses, by the way, which is a new thing in New Orleans mm-hmm. now, let's think about how this long-term investment with the community, how can we create in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans or in the Hyde Estuary area in San Francisco or in downtown Wellington, how do we create these ties that will last to the next disaster?
2: A lot of what social capital is, are, are these organic kind of interactions that people have? How do we then translate that into planning, whether it's pre-emergency or post-emergency and getting back to that level of
3: community again? Yeah, I mean, this this has sort of bothered social scientists for a while. Mm-hmm. I think one of the earliest papers was in 2007, and the question was, can we randomly and artificially create ties where there haven't been before? Mm-hmm. So the paper went to some pretty tough neighborhoods, and actually in Nicaragua and in South Africa, where there was low investment, low education, you know, high unemployment, all the kind of educators that make people very nervous mm-hmm. uh, about bringing their expensive watches and cameras into the neighborhood, and they literally knocked on doors. And tried to convince people to come to a meeting, just a, a meeting. I think they randomly chose it. it was like on the education or women's rights or you know, environment, I'll randomly types to of topics. And what they found was even these in these underinvested neighborhoods, mm-hmm. simply starting meetings up gave them a sense of connection to each other and to the city mm-hmm. to the degree that they began going to other meetings afterwards as well. So it's kind of a weird thing to imagine that you know a zoning meeting is some kind of hub mm-hmm. for building connections. But you know what we saw early from this was. One, it's possible to artificially build social ties. That's a really important thing to think through. Because if social capital is a form of capital, right, that means it can be built, traded, expunged, damaged, uh, or built up. The other thing it showed was, you know, maybe through unexpected ways, it's possible to do this. Literally driving cities to think through, what can we do to overcome class, race, economic boundaries, you know, that often are really huge, especially metropolitan areas, right? So my favorite question to ask people in the cities when I give talks is who can name eight first and last names of neighbors, right? And if you do this survey and over and over again, you get something like 15 to 20% of people have that number of people they know. So, you know, let's say one in five people know eight neighbors pretty well. Most of the rest of us, you know, probably would have a hard time naming that. If you think about that. what that means, whether it's in Boston or Tokyo or Mumbai, That means if there's a flood, if there's a heart attack, if there's a fire, and you go to knock on a neighbor's door and you don't even know who they are, right? Or someone Mm -hmm. drops down literally of a heart attack and you drop to CPR, you don't know who they are either. So that lack of connection Mm -hmm. immediately is a barrier to getting involved.
1: I was telling them actually earlier that since I met you and I started reading your research, I'm like that crazy person who wants to meet all their neighbors now because I'm Very like, cool. if anything so, happens, I want to know my neighbor. So when I moved in, I want to introduce myself. But people here think it's really weird.
3: Well, it's sad, yeah. right? I mean, I think 20 years ago, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was born up in Ithaca, New York. It was like a welcome wagon. I don't even know what that means anymore. But it was like they'd literally bring you like a basket of, I don't know, wine and fruits and something welcome and just say hello. Yeah. And when I was living in Tokyo with my family, Family, they actually, we, we started this tradition in, in Japan, it's called a froshiki, which is kind of like a cloth, mm-hmm. and they'll come, if, if they get your permission, they'll knock on your door and say, hi, welcome to the neighborhood, you know, you're, if you have kids, there's a great park nearby, if you like to go out to eat, here's where you can go, just to let you feel that you're not mm-hmm. sort of isolated and alone in a new place. And I think really, um, you know, a lot of the things happening nowadays between urbanization and social media and screens, mm-hmm. it's so much easier to feel. I don't really need to get out, right? I'm okay. I have my social media contacts. I have my involvement in my selectivism online. I press the buttons, you know, I give a dollar uh, to the ACLS, or whatever it's going to be. And that's not bad. But I think, you know, what we're missing nowadays is a belief that meeting neighbors shouldn't be weird. It we <laughs> should be almost mandatory. We should really be investing in that kind
0: of process. It
1: makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So when it comes to disaster-stricken areas, definitely socioeconomic status plays a huge role. And in Katrina, of course, you saw a lot of Black communities being affected by flooding and feeling the pressures of Katrina's aftermath more than a relatively whiter or affluent communities. In your knowledge and your experience, to what extent does environmental justice intersect with social capital?
3: Yeah, this is a great question. There's a really good article on this, actually, by Elliot and Haynes, where they look at different communities in New Orleans, including mine, actually, including Lakeview, and the Lower Ninth Ward, which is primarily African-American. Mine is primarily white. And they compare what types of ties do people have. Really interesting. So quick crash course on social capital. (laughs) Uh, There are three main types of connections that we have. Uh, People who are like us, we call that bonding social capital. So friends, family, same ethnic background, religious background. Mm -hmm. People who are different than us, but maybe share one interest. So we're at the same school, same workplace. We like bocce ball or opera. We call those bridging ties. And then we occasionally have ties to people in power and authority. So maybe you know Dean Poygier or the Chancellor, right? Those are what we call linking ties. Mm -hmm. So what the study of of New Orleans found was that the the Ninth Feud community really had strong bonding ties, very strong faith-based organizations, for example, strong churches and involvement, but very weak bridging and linking ties. Over time, all three types of ties are necessary. Uh, Bonding are great. If there isn't widespread damage, because that means you're still in the area and you can help each other out. But if you're scattered, then, if the network that you have is either stretched or broken, then the real challenge is those resources are much less helpful, and I need bridging ties. A lot of times, and this is also true initially for the Vietnamese community there, very strong internal ties, bonding ties, very weak bridging ties. What New Orleans has tried to do since then actively is build bridging ties between minority-based communities, like the, the Village to Last, which is the Vietnamese community, like Lower Ninth or like Broadmoor, to institutions, NGOs, other churches, other activities. Because what you do then is you build a network of knowledge, information sharing, and resources. That's based on these bridging ties. Without those, it's much harder to get ahead. And this is what was said a long time ago. I think the article was probably back in 2002. Um, it argued, you know, with bonding ties you can get by but bridging ties you can get ahead, right? And that's a big difference, right? So it's one thing to, for example, be a a rag picker in Mumbai and you you have to substitute official healthcare and official childcare with friends, neighbors, people, and that kind of stuff. That won't get you out of this poverty that you're in. To do that, you need then this reach out right, to a school nearby that would take your, your kids in, to a job outside the neighborhood that would give you a, a regular paying job with benefits. So the problem is oftentimes the most poverty-stricken communities that have faced racism for a long time, they've learned to rely on themselves. Right, bad experiences with the police. We just saw in Starbucks, right, just a few few days ago. Um, You know, sitting and waiting for a friend to come is a crime. Mm -hmm. Not for everybody, though. So those kind of moments make it that you think, why would I invest time and effort in being something outside my computer community? I can invest in my community, which which is logical thing to do. The challenge then is, if your community is damaged or hurt, and the ties are spread, then they can't help you. So I think that's for me one of the big lessons that Hurricane Katrina has brought: the intersection between race, and, and in India's case, caste, and social ties as well. So I did some work in India. Um, there again, caste was a tremendous predictor in the kind of uh, ties that you would have. So individuals who are off the lists, so to speak, um, you might know in, in India there are, well, officially the caste system is illegal. That's officially. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, to my knowledge at least, and this is my personal opinion, there is still a caste system in India. So having said that, there are villages still with only Dalit, the, the untouchables, the lower castes, and there are other villages with high-level castes, the simple reality was NGOs and government officials didn't go at all to some of the villages that were mostly Dalit, these untouchable castes. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, again, they already had strong bonding ties. But if everyone in the village had had their boats damaged, their homes damaged, they lost someone, they need medical care, it's not enough to be tightly knit. You also need resources that would come from bridging and linking ties. So I think it's not just a question of race. um, It's also other forms of discrimination have created... Communities where bonding social capital is the only form of resource they have, and they've either been cut off by or been encouraged to cut off
0: those bridging and linking ties. Definitely. Wow. That's very fascinating.
1: On climate change, we know that climate change will worsen all of these disasters that we have been talking about, right? These are extreme events, so they're not very frequent, but the projections are that they will become more frequent and unpredictable. In your opinion, and you actually have an article by this title, what is the right way to build resilience to climate change?
3: Yeah, this is another interesting moment where... I think our impulse, again, is to go hard in the sense of hard infrastructure projects. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if you're listening to Boston talk right now, there's some amazing Mm -hmm. talk about a seawall in Boston. Uh, There's talk about, you know, moving buildings up onto stilts Mm -hmm. or having higher uh, expectations for base flood elevation, BFE, which is great. But you can see there's also a soft approach to what we know will be the threats to Boston, for example. Higher sea level means more flooding more regularly. And we've seen already some flooding. By the way, I don't know if you are here just a few weeks ago when it was raining tremendously. <laughs> the aquarium station floods regularly. Yeah. So yeah. I tell my kids when we go there, it really is an aquarium <laughs> uh, because there's literally three feet of water in the subway. Yeah. And there's like fish swimming through there because it's pouring down from the, the surface level into the tunnels. <laughs> you know, with these two approaches, hard and soft, I like to talk about. I was in Houston. You know, they've, for the last 40 years pursued a growth strategy, which is literally meant rather than having environmental concerns mm-hmm. at all in expanding suburbs or exurbs, there'd been none at all. They planned development and they put in the very base level of water management and other infrastructure there. So for example, it might be like a two foot pipe to carry excess water out. Mm-hmm. That works pretty well normally. Um, But when you have a a one-in-a-hundred-year flood, which will become probably one in every 20 years and one every 10 years Mm. soon, like we saw in Hurricane Houston, then you have nine feet of water backing up onto highways, not because there's something wrong with the system, but because they invested in the cheapest, least uh, required. And again, it wasn't illegal. That was perfectly legal because, again, the city of Houston's focus was on this growth mindset rather than resilience mindset. The opposite example from Houston, I would say, is Rotterdam, where for many years now, I mean, actually like 400 years, the city has seen water... Not just as an enemy, but as sort of a force of nature that you work with. So, for example, there are there are blue and green zones. Uh, these are often parks where people can play normally, but they're built to flood and absorb mm-hmm. the water should there be a, bre- a breach in the levees. For example, you're getting them to see water not as the enemy, but as part of a normal life cycle. Um, you know, you're building structures. Actually, even Dubai has these now that are literally either floatable or floating so that as water rises or falls, it doesn't damage the structure itself. So ways to think of a soft approach, you know, education. Um, what are the norms we have expectations about behavior? And I think that's a big difference um, in, in thinking the problem through. Again, I think the, the engineering approach is always going to be about what can we do to, you know, build a seawall like Japan has been doing against the tsunami. Uh, what can we do to build buildings that float, which is, again, not a bad idea. But more broadly, the question is, how do we see these threats? Are they once in a while? Are they regular, real risks we face on a daily basis? And how do we build a city of the future? And I, know, I think this is that moment now, a lot of cities, I mean, since, of course, most cities are coastal, you know, Mumbai, Tokyo, Bangladesh, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, 100%, 100%, I mean, all the cities that you think about when you think about a, a major metropolitan area, mm-hmm. those are coastal cities. So this is, not, this is no longer a problem of, of Kiribati or Tuvalu, right? These Pacific islands that are going to be f- um, flooded as climate change changes. These will be cities around the world that most people live in. Literally, mm-hmm. you know, two-thirds of the population in the world by 2060 probably will be in cities. Yeah. Uh, that means no city can say, oh, well, it's someone else's problem, right? They, they can handle that. They really have to think through how do we retrofit buildings? How do we change neighborhoods? How do we incorporate water and other flood zones into our community.
1: Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time and insights.
2: And we look forward to your upcoming book. Thank Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. And follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth.
1: New episodes air every Thursday before your morning cup of coffee.
0: Stay tuned for next week's episode. And thanks for listening. Stay cool.